it's more than just providing this little stuffed animal for a survivor. It's about keeping their family intact and letting them know that they got out and everybody's safe. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. I've interviewed countless veterinarians, and one common theme I've noticed is this. Throughout veterinary school, veterinarians may have this vision of their ideal job in the profession. And then they graduate, finally land the role, and feel like something is not quite right, or something is missing. You'll find examples of this in a few of the episodes. The first episode with Drs. Lori Teller and Nancy Turner, Redefining Success in Veterinary Medicine and Dr. Tanasia Crocker's episode, Finding Joy in the Profession, all of whom eventually found the career path that was uniquely meant for them. Well, that's the story for our guest today, Dr. Katie Luke, the Chief Operations Officer of the Austin Humane Society. She didn't even know that shelter medicine was an option after she graduated from veterinary school. She thought it was something veterinarians do on the side. In this episode, Dr. Luke shares how she found her way into this field of veterinary medicine and also talks about the life-changing programs the Austin Humane Society provides both pets and humans during times of crisis. What does crisis look like? Natural disasters, financial hardship due to the pandemic, and incidents of domestic violence. The Austin Humane Society truly helps pets and people stay together during or following times of crisis. And on a lighter note, they are a foster and adoption center, helping pets find their forever homes. Well, what role does Dr. Luke have in all of these programs? Let's first hear her journey of how she got to where she is today. Here she is. When I graduated veterinary school, Um, I originally had the intention of working in small animal private practice, and that's where I landed initially. Um, I went to a small animal practice in the Austin area. um, And while I enjoyed the work itself, I just didn't feel completely fulfilled. I felt like something was missing and I spent, um, gosh, it felt like 80% of my day on the phone um, rather than providing care. It felt like it was more clerical, you know, just having conversations with pet owners and um, going back and forth about financial constraints and, and the cost of care and things like that. And it just felt like something was missing, to be honest. Um, not long after, probably a year after graduation, um, I started thinking about um, relief work just to see if I could sort of try out different places. Like, was this specific to the clinic I was in or was it just how practice is. Um, and I started uh, doing relief around the Austin area. And um, during that time, a friend reached out who had a classmate on the board of the Austin Humane Society. Um, so it was relatively arbitrary. Uh, but she was sharing that they were starting to look for a vet to come and do surgery a couple of days a week. And I've always loved surgery. So I thought, hmm, well, that might be a fun one or two day a week little thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's a little closer to my house than some of the clinics I was driving to. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll reach out and see how that goes. And um, I joke now with Francis, our president and CEO who hired me, 
because I didn't really take it super seriously. I just thought it'd be another um, relief work job, you know. So I actually met with her on a Saturday after we had a garage sale at our house. So I was wearing shorts <laughs> and a t-shirt, um, having just had a garage sale and just went up to the shelter and met with her and didn't really think um, that it would turn into this career path. Um, and I started started at the Humane Society in August of 2006, and here I am 14, 15 years later, because after I started there, I realized it, it met a lot of the things I was missing, and it was mm. um, feeling like I was taking care of animals who didn't have anyone else to advocate for them. Not that pet owners weren't advocating for their pets, but they, they had their pet owner, you know, to watch out for them, and these homeless animals really felt like um, they came to us with no one in the world and our job was to make sure they were taken care of, but also to make sure that we were doing our best to find them a new family. So I found that really fulfilling also that um, I didn't have to spend all day on the phone anymore. I could just do and just yeah. be a vet and do all the things because the shelter is the owner and acting as the vet for the shelter. I was able to make decisions without checking in and worrying about, um, will the owner want to do this or that and talking to their husband and their grandma and everybody else about the decision. Um, and so it felt, it felt like it really was a good fit for me. And then, um, over time, it's just been even more than I thought it could be, um, a great fit because I've gotten to move into managerial positions and leadership and, learned so much more than I ever thought I would being a veterinarian about nonprofit management and how to try to inspire people and helping people in crisis. Just so many things that I, I don't think I would have necessarily experienced as a private practitioner that um, shelter medicine provides this great variety, but also mm -hmm. so much opportunity to try so many different things and learn so many different aspects of, of working in a, a different type of organization than the, than the quintessential private veterinary practice. So it's really, it was a complete accident um, that started <laughs> on a, started on a Saturday after a garage sale and it turned wow. into, um, I think the perfect job for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's so amazing. You have, um, a job that fits you so well. Are you excited to go to work every day? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, there are definitely ups and downs, like with any job, there are days where there are things you don't necessarily want to do that day. Um, yeah. Usually, I think people have this impression that in the shelter, that's going to involve um, sad things with the animals. And we're really fortunate in our organization. That's not the case. You know, it's not, it's not about sadness with what's happening to the animals, because we know that the day they come to us, that's probably going to be one of the best days that's going to mm -hmm. turn them around, because we're going to put everything we can into turning things around. Um, but the the hard days are when you see um, sad things happen like natural disasters and people going through struggles or hearing about why people have to give up their pets. Um, and then, of course we always have to deal with all the same things everybody does, but just, you know, people being upset or, you know, um, phone calls you don't want to make and stuff like that. <laughs> so, yeah. but yeah, but most of the time it's, it's pretty fun. We, um, I feel like we have a really strong team and, it's a small enough team. There are about 42 of us uh, that you really bond pretty closely. Um, there are a lot of us who have worked there over 10 years um, and a lot more that have worked there over five years. So we have a team that's been around a while um, and have gotten to know each other really well. So that makes it a lot more fun. It's like, it really is like your second family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was about to say, that sounds like another family. Um, 
Yeah. So tell me specifically what the Humane Society does and how you play a role in those activities. Awesome. Um, Boston Humane Society started in 1952. So since then, the original mission was about adoption of homeless pets. It's about um, finding new beginnings for animals that have landed in your in your place for some reason, whether it's owners that could no longer care for them or they were found stray or they needed more care than somebody could provide. Um, so we continue a commitment to that mission, of course. That's the mainstay of who we are. But we've really found a niche in a few other areas that we've been drawn to over time um, that we may not have even anticipated maybe 10 years ago. Uh, we do have evidence going back to 1952 that we've always been involved in responding to emergencies. And that's still a critical piece of what we do. We are um, the disaster partner for the city of Austin's animal services department. And we respond to disasters in the sense that we shelter pets that are displaced, whether they're owned pets or they're stray pets or they're animals that came out of disaster areas. Um, we help with that piece of things. That's a big piece of our identity now um, and ha seems to have been since 1952. More recently, over the last, I guess, 15, 12 to 15 years, um, we are the trap neuter return people in this area. And that came from a plan for Austin to try to achieve um, as little euthanasia as possible of healthy animals. And so part of that was trying to do spay neuter on free roaming cats. You all, everybody sees stray cats around, right? And they're mm -hmm. making most of the little kittens that end up in shelters mm -hmm. as people find them in their bushes or mm -hmm. underneath their porch. And they bring them into the shelter to try to do a good, a good deed. Um, and then the shelters get overwhelmed with these little babies and then they're the most vulnerable too to provide care for. So mm -hmm. That's a big avenue is to try to spay neuter a lot of those free roaming cats before they have these kittens and before those kittens end up in shelters. And that's a piece that we stepped up to take care of back in March of 2007. We started the, what we call the community cat program. Okay. Um, and that's a big piece of what we do as well. So those are, those are three of our big programs. We also have a pet food pantry that we started during this pandemic um, to try to support pet owners in the community that maybe struggling. And if we can just provide a little bit of support, we know it's not, you know, going to help them keep their house, but if it can help them with one less thing to worry about, um, we're providing pet food and we're running those every couple months right now with food supported by HEB for the most part. Um, and we have some other great partners. Some of our veterinary partners have helped us with that as well. And then of course, just the day to day, we do a lot of children's programming. So we have a summer kids series for kiddos and that's just about trying to, um, inspire compassion in young people and help them understand the role of pets in people's lives and how they can, they too can be pet advocates and they can, you know, we, we feel like young people have the same capacity to understand the love of pets and how, what they bring to our lives. So that's what that program's about and hopefully inspiring them to be more compassionate adults as they're older as well. So those are, those are some of the big ones. Yeah. And so what is your role in some of those? So you probably do the spay and neuter um, to help reduce euthanasia um, for the CAT program? For sure. So my role's changed a little bit in the last several years. When I first came on as the, I was the first staff vet at the Austin Humane Society. They had had contract vets in the past that came in and did things here and there, but I was the first employee 
employee veterinarian wow. um, back in 2006. And so um, at first it was about building our medical program. We used to pack up all the animals every day and transport them to Emancipet for spay neuter. And then Texas A&M would bring veterinary students once a week to do spay neuter. And at that point we created a way to do surgeries in house. So we had to buy all the equipment and figure out what that looked like. And it was basically like starting our own little practice in the middle of the shelter Yeah. and create all these protocols for the staff. You know, if, if you see this symptom, this is what I want you to do and when to, you know, when to call me if I'm not here. Cause at the beginning I was just there one or two days a week. Mm. Um, now we have three full-time veterinarians. There's usually one of us around. Yeah. In the early years, probably for the first 10 years I was at AHS, I did a lot of the surgeries, a lot of the spay neuter, a lot of the medicine, taking care of shelter pets, um, providing care to those community cats if they came in with wounds or whatever. Mm-hmm. What's been really, I think, rewarding for me is over time transitioning more into leadership roles at the shelter. And then now as the chief operations officer, I have a lot of influence on what programs we offer, but also how we offer them and how we can make them the most efficient and the most accessible and the most impactful. And so my role now is a little different. I manage the veterinary team and manage the shelter managers who do all of the day-to-day things and try to support them so they can do their best jobs, but also help guide them on the vision, make sure we stay within budget, make sure we're making good decisions, cultivate partnerships. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, a little bit different of a role, but it's fun. Every once in a while, I still get to go dabble in surgery too. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever imagine having a role like that? No. Um, and honestly, at first moving out of the veterinary role, I probably uh, pushed back against it a little bit because mm. I thought, oh, that sounds like a lot. And that's not really, <laughs> that's not what I've been trained to do. Um, yeah. But we had, we had an opportunity where we had a great manager who was leaving to stay home with her babies. And they asked me to temporarily fill in, still be the veterinarian, but fill in for her um, as shelter manager. And I I thought, well, this is actually kind of fun because I really got to know more about the other departments at the shelter and how all the other pieces worked. Whereas before I was just head down working in the, in the medical piece Mm. and it opened my eyes to all the ways we could, we could make things better and try to try to overlap a lot of our programs and our departments a little bit better. So then when the opportunity came for me to step into the COO role, it was a new position. Our president and CEO actually went on maternity leave and the other three of us who were, I guess, report directly to her had to sort of man the ship. Wow. Um, and it was a good test run. And yeah. um, I thought, man, I think I can do this and it's, and it's fun. So that's great. That's how it came about. So yeah, I didn't picture it much like I didn't picture working at the Humane <laughs> Society for, for 15 years either, but um, yeah. it's, it's turned out to be just the right thing. Yeah. Some things just kind of fall into your lap. Yeah. 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 Um, So it's interesting. So we are, you just mentioned COVID and because that is still very much in all of our lives right now, I thought it was really interesting that you guys created a pet food pantry for those who are struggling financially. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because I know you guys are also doing something else during the pandemic related to domestic violence, but let's first talk about the pet food pantry and then we can go ahead and delve into the other topic. Sure. Um, So one of my wonderful friends and colleagues at HS, Angela, she's our chief development and 
um, marketing communications officer. Sorry, I always watch that. She is a huge heart. And so we both have a similar mentality that we like to get things done, but she's definitely the biggest heart I've probably met. And Mm. I think when the pandemic first started, we were so focused initially in those early months. Like I think most people were on how do we keep our team safe? How do we maintain any sense of operations? How do we continue to serve animals? I didn't really look up from that um, initially. And she was immediately thinking, how do we help the community better? You know, we're, we're a fortunate organization because we've always had really great support from our community. We've always had really loyal donors and people who feel passionately about what we do that we haven't had to feel the pain of some smaller shelters that really struggle um, to be able to provide care. And so um, I think for, for Angela and then our, our president and CEO, Francis, they really were like, this is the time to give back to the people who have given Mm -hmm. us for 50 years. So Mm -hmm. 70 years, um, actually. So I was not involved in the creation of the program. I'm super proud of it. And I think it's even more so inspiring to me that it was, it came from a place of love and just wanting to share. We've had a really strong partnership with HEB for many years Mm -hmm. and they were a fundamental piece of this too, because our, our team approached HEB and said, would you consider partnering on this? And they absolutely said yes. So we had donors that paid for the first pet food pantry. They, they gave us like $10,000 to buy all this food. Really great donors. Um, It's the Turner family in case they hear this. They purchased all this food and just sort of put this together in a hurry. And we're like, let's help people right now. Hurry up. We don't know what the future of this is. We're just doing it today. And then I think going through that first pet food pantry back in April, they saw the pet owners coming through and um, just how gracious they were. A lot of them brought their pets in the car and seeing the pets face to face, it really meant something to our team. So right then and there, we, whether we knew it or not, we were committing to a long-term program with the pet food pantry. So since then we've served thousands of families. I should probably have the number and I don't have it in front of me, but it's been, <laughs> it's been thousands and thousands of pets. Um, and mm-hmm. we have a lot of, a lot of repeat people that, this is, this is what's helping just nudge them along um, is to help give them a little bit of help. So we'd love to do more. Um, we're doing what we can right now and doing these about every couple months. Our next one will be the day before Valentine's Day on February 13th. All right. February 13th has come and gone, but the Austin Humane Society will most likely host another distribution event in the spring. Yeah, it's been a really special program. I think it's going to grow. I think it's going to evolve. We're looking at ways to partner even more widely with groups that serve people who we know really need the help the most. And so mm-hmm. it will change and, and grow and land where it needs to. For now, we're just trying to get food in the hands of people who need it. Yeah. I wonder if this is something that once it started that you guys were like, why didn't we do this earlier? <laughs> For sure. For sure. A lot of the programs are like, I know we're like, what? Um, And and we've seen a lot of pop-up food pantries across the country as well. We're certainly Mm -hmm. not the only group that's, that's done this. Um, But we felt like it was a niche that wasn't met here locally. So Mm -hmm. we have the means to do it. We have the right partners to do it. We have the right partners to steer it for the future. So we already are kind of looking toward, you know, how do we partner with Austin ISD and how do we, how do we figure out who, needs this food and how to get it to them the most appropriately in the most helpful way. So for sure, I wish we thought of it sooner, but sometimes it, sometimes crisis pushes you towards. Yeah. 
you know, pushes you towards great solutions. So, yeah. So if there's a pet owner listening or a veterinarian who is um, helping a client who might, might be struggling financially, where would you tell them to go for more information? Would they just visit the Austin Humane Society? They certainly can. Uh, we've been experimenting with whether to have folks register beforehand so that we make sure we have this fear of running out of food mm -hmm. when there are people who need it um, and making sure that we have an adequate supply. So we've been experimenting with whether it's going to be continue to be a registration process. The December pantry we did first come first serve um, just to see what that looked like mm -hmm. and I don't think anything major, you know, terrible happened. Uh, so I think it still worked. So we're still trying to figure out what exactly that's going to look like in the future. So probably my recommendation at this point, if people are interested in learning more about it, is for one, following our Facebook page, because that's the most accurate, up-to-date, where you'll see what we're doing, when we're doing it. Okay. Um, and then just keep an eye on our website, which is austinhumanesociety.org. Okay. And so let's talk about the, what you guys do to help people who are experiencing domestic violence and the impact on that on pets. And it seems like there might be a greater incidence of that, or it might be just more difficult for people right now to get out of those situations during the pandemic. Um, so tell me about what the Austin Humane Society is doing. Hey, you're absolutely right, Dina. Um, our understanding is that, you know, the incidence of domestic violence has increased, but you're right, it's harder for people to come up with viable solutions to get out of those situations when there's so many other complicated things happening. We developed a partnership with um, SAFE, which is Stop Abuse for Everyone, which is the big domestic violence shelter here in, in Austin, probably about two and a half, three years ago. Um, and initially we approached that really with just trying to learn more about SAFE and what they do and what they currently did for pets, but also what their challenges were with managing survivors' pets, because um, we really didn't know. We were approaching it um, with a curious mind and, and wanting to feel like we were helping people in their worst moments. Mm -hmm. And some of that stems from our experiences with disaster response where that's been some of the most tiring and exhausting work we've done, but also the most yeah. impactful. If you ask the team, like some of their favorite memories working at HS, mine specifically too, it's a lot of them are focused around these really gut-wrenching moments where people have been ripped from their homes and all they need is their dog back just to have one little thing, you know, mm. that feels okay. Yeah. And so I think that got our brains thinking about not just the disasters that happen from time to time when the weather's bad or, a fire starts, but the disasters that happen every single day for people and safe came to mind initially. So we, we started talking to them and I will say the very first meeting we had with their team, we felt like these are our people, you know, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of similarities to what they do for people and what we do for pets, not so much in why, why the animals we serve come to us and why the people they serve come to them. I'm not saying, you know, we deal with a lot of um, violence with pets. We don't see that as much as people probably assume we do, but more so in that we're sheltering animals and they're sheltering people when they're going through a rough patch in life. And the goal is to get them back on their feet. Mm -hmm. So we initially clicked with them and started talking through what they've tried, what they've, what they do. And they were, they're amazing. They were making it work. Like they'd have survivors come in with their pets because it's, 
it's been shown over and over again that people will not leave their pets, whether in a, we all yeah. saw it in Hurricane Katrina. We, mm-hmm. we see it every time there's a big nasty hurricane and people are sitting on their roofs and they have yeah. their dogs up there. It's mm-hmm. the same thing in domestic violence situations that if you can't make a plan for the pet, that may be the thing that keeps the survivor in the home. And also the, the abuser may use that as leverage, you know, that mm-hmm. if you leave, I'm going to hurt the dog. So we felt like it was really important. It's more than just providing this little stuffed animal for a survivor. It's about keeping their family intact and letting them know that they got out and everybody's safe. So for us, it was trying to figure out how to keep that furry family member as a part of the equation. So um, long story short, we've been talking with safe, working with safe now for three years about how to best support them. And that looks like a lot of different things, but most recently we've been really blessed that safe received a grant, a a great grant from um, the Austin, the office of um, victim crimes, which Mm -hmm. is a government agency. And part of that grant is for the Austin Humane Society to provide preventative care for pets of survivors. So survivors that are living on safe's campus can get, their animals vaccinated, microchipped, heartworm tested, feline combo tested, spay neutered, um, and make sure that that's one less thing that the survivor has to deal with. It's also, Mm -hmm. it can be a huge barrier when they're looking for their next housing um, if they don't have that stuff done. So we just kicked that off this week. So we'll see see how that goes. But our our hope is um, this is a three-year grant and our hope, our hope is to serve all the pets on the safe campus for the next three years um, effectively. And then hopefully it'll continue on from there. Mm-hmm. Do you have any specific stories where um, you've seen the impact that it's had on a particular person? So far, having just started the preventative care piece, not, not yet, but I know yeah. we will. Yeah. Um, but we have provided temporary foster care for people from various various avenues that are going through crisis. We have a program we call the safekeeping program that sort of evolved from our partnership with safe. We had a lovely volunteer, Stacy Kirby, that helped was instrumental in putting all the groundwork together to make this project happen. Um, and, and when we launched safekeeping, we were really focused on, can we provide a temporary home for pets of domestic violence survivors while they're getting on their feet again, if they can't keep their pet with them, wherever mm-hmm. they are, stay in yeah. the family, whatever. And it, this is domestic violence survivors from wherever. Um, so that was our original intent, but we quickly realized that we see people on, at least on a weekly basis, if not more often that come in looking for that type of help for various reasons. We had a gentleman come who was entering a treatment, a rehab treatment inpatient program, couldn't take his dog. Um, and he really was so focused on what was best for his, his dog. Mm-hmm. Um, And at first he came and kind of just asked questions and the staff didn't really know for sure what kind of support he was, he was looking for. Um, And then they questioned more and they called him back and they really pursued it. And it was what we could provide for him was knowing that his dog was safe while he was getting himself safe. So Mm. um, that's been a, that's been a critical one. And we have fostered, we fostered a pair of kitties for a a survivor for eight months until she had gone through a lot of healing and got back into her own housing. So yeah. um, we know the need is much greater than what we're seeing already. 
Um, mm-hmm. We're just starting, I feel like. Um, so it's not a program that we've broadcast out to the world and said, we can do this because we could probably quickly become overwhelmed, <laughs> um, especially as people are expecting evictions and things like that. Who knows what the next few months will bring. Yeah. Um, but, but for now, that's how we're trying to help support people that are going through these crisis situations. Yeah. And I'm sure it just means the world to them because so many people consider their pets family. For sure. For sure. We hope so. It's easy to think it's just a dog or it's just a cat, but for the people who have so much sadness or so much trauma in their lives, that might be the one bright spot. And so um, anything we can do to support that relationship and, and giving them the chance to nurture that relationship and have choices about that relationship, we, we try to be really conscious of making sure that the pet owner has options mm-hmm. um, and then that they can keep their family intact at the end of this when they hopefully all come out better is, is our goal. Yeah. And let's talk about what you guys do for natural disasters. It seems like it's pretty similar. Is there anything else you'd like to elaborate on um, a specific disaster? I know you mentioned Hurricane Katrina. I can't, I'm trying to think of um, Hurricane, <laughs> what, Har- Hurricane yes, Harvey. Harvey. That was the most, 2017. I remember. Um, yes. Good memory. Yeah, well, I wrote uh, an article for TVMA's magazine about Operation Reunite. Yes. Yeah. There was a partnership, I think with the Houston SBCA yes. and just trying to um, re- reunite the pets with their uh, owners. So yeah. Yeah. If you want to talk about what you guys did during yeah. that time. That was a great partnership. We were really proud of Houston for spearheading that. And I think that was a great, um, a great way to help people after that crazy monumentous disaster. We tend to respond to, when I say emergency response, we always say we set up our emergency pet shelter is kind of our way to talk about what we do with that. Um, and and that may look like a natural disaster. You know, locally, it tends to be flooding every few years. Probably a lot of people in the area remember the Bastrop fires from yeah. 2011. That was a really significant one um, to me personally too. But just seeing the people that came through. Um, Hurricane Ike was a big one. My parents actually lived down in the affected area. So Marsley was like, wow. Wah! you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot of times it's hurricanes. A lot of times it's flooding. Hopefully it won't be fires too often, but we have done that. Um, but it also, when we talk about emergency pet sheltering, we're also talking about just any sort of um, large scale intake. Like if there's a hoarding case or something like that. Oh, um, okay. And, it, and we don't, we don't, we are not the, city municipal agency that has like police force attached to us. We don't have authority or jurisdiction to go in and say like, we think you're a hoarder and we're busting your door down and taking all your cats or anything like that. Yeah. And like people may picture, we certainly get calls all the time, you know, like about that. And we have to direct folks to, to three one one to contact the city about concerns about animal welfare. Um, but generally we're acting as the partner when law enforcement's already involved and they just need a place for these animals to go and receive care. Got and it. then okay. very occasionally we have to go to court, but okay. usually, usually it doesn't come to that. Um, yeah. So in the, in the natural disaster realm, in my time at HS, we've seen a lot of them. And I would say Harvey was probably with the Bastrop fires, sort of the biggest in terms of just number of animals affected and geographical span. I wasn't here for Katrina. I started 
HS after that, but I realized that one was a big one, <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, and the benefit of Katrina was that it really changed the way people look at pets in disaster response. There there are laws that came about after Katrina that ensured that anybody who's planning for evacuation of people had to also plan for animal evacuation, mm. or they wouldn't receive federal reimbursement. So that changed wow. the landscape for emergency response for pets. Yeah. Um, so pets really are a part of the plans now. Um, generally, when we're responding, we are providing a safe place for either owned pets who can't stay with their owners. Most recently with, um, oh my gosh, Hurricane Laura. Sorry, that escaped me for a second. This past summer, the city of Austin, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, had the foresight to, to plan how can we shelter people safely? Because usually people are in these sort of Red Cross shelters. You're staying on a cot and you're five feet from someone else, right? Yeah, yeah. And in this scenario, they were putting families in hotel rooms around town, which I'm sure was a mm. major undertaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is awesome for many reasons. I mean, it kept people safe during the pandemic, but also usually then you can have pets with you. And uh, the challenges that came into play were either pets that weren't, there were too many maybe for a family. So like some hotels had rules, like you could have one dog per room or two dogs per room, um, or you couldn't have certain species of pets mm. or maybe they had specific breeds. They didn't welcome there. And so that's where we became the overflow for owned pets who couldn't stay with their people for whatever reason. Okay. And we, during Laura had about 24, I think pets owned pets. Historically, we've also been an evacuation shelter. So we have partnerships with, shelters along the Gulf Coast, especially in Texas. Um, so with Corpus Christi, with Baytown, we work closely with the Houston SPCA as well. And they are a major evacuation partner for a lot of places. So sometimes we just pull animals out of Houston so that they can then evacuate from Louisiana or whatever. Um, oh, it's wow. sort of this like chain reaction. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of times we're getting evacuated pets from shelters who can immediately be adopted out because they've already been in a shelter. They're not an owned animal. Um, But we're just relieving space in the affected area so they can deal with strays down there and owned pets down there, if that makes sense. So there's kind of these different pieces of it. um, But what makes it really important is to be plugged into these systems and have these partnerships before something goes wrong. Because in the middle of the chaos, everybody wants to help and they start sweeping in and doing what they think is helping. And sometimes it causes more problems. So Mm. um, we've really tried to approach disaster response as building those collaborations, those partnerships, and making sure we're built into the formal plan um, and everyone knows what our role is and, and who our point of contact is and how to, how to best work with us so that we can make sure that we're not contributing to the problems. Mm. Yeah, like having too many cooks in the kitchen, like just yeah. having it very much organized. For sure, for sure. There's, yeah. um, you know, the police department and firefighters, they're all trained in this, like very military, they're trained in this Um, ICS structure where everybody has a role and you stick to your role and you have to go to your person. And, and most of us in, especially private nonprofits, it's like, everybody figure it out, you know, it's just chaos. (laughs) And so um, it's not necessarily how we're all brought up, but it's important to plug into that system so that you make sure that you're not causing more chaos. Mm -hmm. So are you guys anticipating anything this coming year? Like I know there is hurricane season. You said, you know, flooding does happen in Austin. Um, we are still in the middle of the pandemic. Um, anything else that's like on the horizon that you guys are anticipating or thinking about? Yeah. Um, 
when when we're talking about anticipating like disaster related things, we're just gonna cross our fingers and say, I hope not. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have a lot of superstition around disasters. Yeah. I think the whole everybody who works in disaster response in general kind of went into 2020 terrified because there were all these projections about it being a really nasty hurricane season, which was pretty much Mm. proven correct. Mm -hmm. And once the pandemic started, everyone was like, how in the heck are we going to do what we do in the middle of a global pandemic? And I will say that people figured it out. Like I am super impressed. So I feel really optimistic, not because I think all of a sudden this pandemic is going to go away, but I feel like more than ever before, people just poured everything into figuring it out and making it work. And we made it through a really complicated year. So I feel a little bit more empowered. Like we can do this. We can do whatever mm-hmm. 2021 throws. So I don't know what the hurricane season will bring. Hopefully it'll be a little quieter. But on the side of other crises, I think the animal sheltering world is kind of closely watching what may happen. And I'm not a super political person, so I don't I don't, I don't uh, pretend to know, you know, exactly what might happen on what day and all that kind of stuff. But the, the concern is that there will be more evictions in early 2021 as, as the moratorium on evictions expires. And so on January 28th, Travis County Judge Andy Brown and Austin Mayor Steve Adler announced that the eviction moratorium in Austin Travis County will be extended to April 1st. We have yet to see. I think that's what the animal sheltering world is preparing for is okay. will we see this influx of pets that could overwhelm the shelter system? Um, yeah. I hope that's not the case. I think um, a lot of programs that shelters have put into place already, like foster care systems and like the safekeeping program, hopefully those will help ameliorate that if that mm-hmm. if that takes place. But it, it could that could be an issue. Yeah. We'll yeah. See. Time will tell. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. And so I think at one point I was thinking, I don't have a pet. And so I was thinking about fostering and I did take care of TVMA's office cat for like five, six months. Her name's Luna. Shout out to Luna. (laughs) I know Luna. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. So Luna's a black cat, super sweet. Sometimes actually I can't (laughs) say she's sweet all the time. Um, And so I know that you guys are doing like curbside fosters and adoption. So are you able to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, like I told you earlier, when the pandemic first started, our first thought was keep the team safe. Oh gosh, we don't know how this spreads. We don't know all the things, right? And so it was a lot of just like watching every single press conference and being on every website and being in every single Zoom call about everything. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out what kind of crisis are we facing here and how how worried do we need to be? Can pets get it? I'm still, I still get questions from friends about that. Like, do I need yeah. to be worried because my dog was at my friends and she has COVID now? We were on calls every day with people from across the nation, disaster response people, people from all the major shelter medicine programs with the Association of Animal Welfare Advancement, like trying to figure out what people were seeing in these initial hotspots in New York and Seattle. And so that was our initial focus. Once we could breathe for a second, probably after the initial few weeks. And we had, we um, split our team so that if someone got sick on team on the blue team, then the green team could still function, for example. And we wanted to make sure there was a way to make sure we could provide care Mm -hmm. no matter what, because we do have animals 365 days a year. You can't just close. Right. So um, we wanted to make sure we could do that. So that was the initial focus. Then, then we really started thinking 
okay, how do we continue to serve animals and the people who need them, who want a new pet? Um, in times of stress, people look to pets for comfort. So it's mm -hmm. not just about having something to do. You know, sometimes people need a pet just to get through this crazy experience. I think everyone in the animal welfare world kind of braced ourselves for like, we may see a bunch of people surrender their pets because they're scared their cat can give it to them. Um, so there was a big push of education. Like, you know, this is what we're seeing in animals. They can't, they can't spread it to you. Like cats can contract it. Like every time a story came out of um, one of the dogs that lived with a COVID positive person tested positive for COVID, all of us would be like, uh Oh, you know, what does that mean? And what mm -hmm. are people going to do with that information? So a lot of it was developing education at first and trying to make sure our team was safe. But then we really started looking at all of our programs in a fresh way and thinking, how can we still provide this service? Should we provide this service? Is this essential enough that it warrants the risks? Um, so initially we shut down, for example, our spay neuter programs um, and we donated all of our PPE to the Austin Disaster Recovery Network so they could share mm -hmm. it with human healthcare providers. So initially we just completely shut down the, the surgery program, um, which was, you know, some folks didn't like that. And I think for us, it was really about making sure we weren't utilizing supplies that were needed in human hospitals because um, we do shelters do high volume surgery. We have a lot of, we buy a lot of masks and gloves, you know, okay. we stopped that more for the human benefit, realizing that we would have some messes to clean up afterwards. Right. Like we were adopting out animals that hadn't been spay neutered and we've never done that in our 70 years. So it was time to go, we had to go back and fix that afterwards and that's fine. It all worked out. Okay. Part of all that was just analyzing every single program. And part of it for adoption was how can we continue to move pets? Because there are still pets in shelters that are at risk who rely on us to transport those animals in and find homes in Austin because we have such a great adoption community. So we shifted everything curbside and you'll hear virtual curbside, whatever it's, it's all kind of the same idea. So all of our adoption processes that used to, you know, people used to just wander in when they were ready. Now it's all appointment yeah. scheduled. It's a little more structured. Okay. Um, and it, there's some pros and cons, but in general, people can, um, feel safe because they're not interacting directly with any other public. They can reach out about pets that they're specifically interested in. We talk to them about those pets. We may try to steer them, you know, if we feel like there are other pets that might meet what they're saying they want better. Um, so it's the same process. It's just not done in person. And then when they're ready to adopt, they can come pick up the pet. And we, we have outdoor dog, fenced-in dog runs that we can take the dog to and then step out of the space um, or we put cats in carriers, set mm -hmm. them right outside the door and the person's right there on the front porch. Um, and we've done the same thing for foster and intake as well. And so okay. really we've relied really heavily on our foster volunteers to help us take care of so many animals um, while allowing our staff to not have as many animals physically in the shelter since we're not have we don't have all our, our regular volunteers now. Okay. And um, so I'm on your website and I was looking at uh, cats that are up for adoption, <laughs> maybe for, maybe for my own reasons. Uh -oh. um, yeah. Is this the most up to date? It is. So that's updated okay. in real time. Um, so generally our process will be that as soon as an animal is available for adoption, they're going to show up They're Okay. Usually we try to have a picture pretty quickly. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes they'll have a little cat, you know, caricature if we don't. Have yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, 
and you can click into that and, and get the basic information about an animal. And then if you're interested in one, then you reach out to our adoption department um, and then they will um, schedule a time to counsel you on that pet. So they go through all the things like, this is what we know about Fluffy. You know, okay. she came from this situation. She <laughs> hates dogs or whatever it is. Um, and then whatever medical we know. And then if you decide you want to adopt Fluffy or at least try for now with puppies and kittens, they're they're moving so quickly that if you're looking for a puppy or kitten and you see one that you're interested in, jump on it because okay. they are <laughs> flying out of here. I think yeah. a lot of people working at home and it's a good time to potty train, I think is what people are thinking. But with the adult animals, a lot of times we're doing foster to adopt options. Okay. Which we had done that before, but now we're doing on a much bigger scale where we know that you're coming, if you're coming in to meet, to adopt a dog or a cat, usually in the old process, you would come in and interact with that pet in our building right. and kind of see if you felt things, you know? Yeah. And in this situation, it's hard to do that. So our team will counsel you on what we know about the pet and what we've okay. seen with the personality. And then you take them home on this sort of, it's almost like a trial period. It's a foster to adopt situation. So you're not technically, you don't have to feel like you're burdened with the ownership right away. Um, but we let you kind of almost do like a trial for a week and then see if, okay. it, if that pet's a good fit for your home. And that seems to be really helping people. Okay. Yeah. Just decisions. Just asking for a friend. Yeah. I bet. <laughs> there's a friend some named Dina. Yeah. There's some cuties here. <laughs> Cute cucumber, dill, Dorito. I love the names. Um, they're cute. Our team's really, they're really cute about doing themed names so we can tell like which groups came together. And I love the names. Uh, they're fun. Yeah. But yeah, they, we get, we get new animals every single day. So if anybody's looking for a pet, I would just encourage you to check our website frequently because it can change throughout the day and it okay. certainly changes every day. But if you see one you're interested in, do reach out. It doesn't mean you're committing, um, but do reach out soon because we are just seeing animals move. It's really been a silver lining of the pandemic is that people are adopting so much. Mm-hmm that we're, we're just seeing, and this isn't just us, this is shelters across the country. We're just seeing animals move so much faster, which was such a nice silver lining for everything else um, that they don't stay a real long time, which is good. Yeah. So it doesn't commit you, but it, at least get in line to find out about them if you think you might be into one. And is there anything else you'd like to share about shelter work? You know, why you find it rewarding? Yeah, I think, um, if I'm talking to my veterinary colleagues, I would just say, and, and veterinary students, we, um, with the Houston SPCA, we co-teach the shelter medicine class for second year vet students at Texas A&M. And that is such a cool opportunity because as a veterinary student, I didn't even really realize working in a shelter was a thing. You know, mm. you just kind of assume that as a private practitioner, you might help out at the shelter on a Saturday once a month or something. That's mm -hmm. kind of, you know, the model you envision and yeah. shelter medicine's really become its own career destination for people. It's not just this um, thing you do on the weekends when you're feeling nice mm -hmm. um, and you have a little spare time. And so it's really a great opportunity. There are a lot of opportunities all over the country, all over the world in shelter medicine and the, the level of expertise and the compensation and all of the, all of the good things. Um, have really escalated over the last five to 10 years. So I would just encourage people if you're, if you're a veterinary practitioner to, and you've felt some unrest in your position, or if you've just kind of 
been curious about shelter medicine to, to try it, you know, or reach mm-hmm. out to your local shelter people and, and, um, see if you could spend a day and see what it's like. I think just for, um, people in general, I just about shelter work, I would just say that we as shelter workers really feel like we get a lot of thank yous. Like we get a lot of people who are like, thank you for what you do. And and for mm-hmm. us, it is a job, you know, it's not like we're, I always tell people like, it's, I'm not a saint, you know, this is, <laughs> yeah. I do this as a job. So it's not, um, you know, volunteer work that we do on the side. I think our volunteers are really the true saints in this situation because they mm-hmm. give us their time and they already, a lot of them have full-time jobs and we rely mm-hmm. on them so heavily. Our team is only 40 people. So to, to do, to serve the number of pets we serve each year, it's really about volunteer support. So if anybody's wow. feeling like called to work with animals and they can't do it as a, as a job, mm-hmm. think about volunteering, whether it's foster volunteering or volunteering at the facility. I realize that comes with risks right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are ways you can help that don't have to be life-changing, you know, and, and take up all your time, but can be yeah. so transformational for pets and and the people who work in the shelters too. So it's, it's actually a a much happier situation than you realize. Most of the time we're giving these pets their second chance. There's a couple of sad moments, but it's really not as frequent as everyone assumes. Most of the days are are pretty, are filled with really great stories and really great situations where you're, you get in some dog that has terrible mange, for example, has no hair, but you're like, Oh, we're going to have you looking good in like a month. (laughs) So, um, it's, it's really a, a pretty uplifting place to be. So. Yeah. Very inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. You guys do such amazing work and I think it'll be great for people to hear about it and for any listeners in Austin, <laughs> for them to maybe volunteer if they're a veterinarian, check out shelter medicine. Um, so yeah. Absolutely. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you for thinking of us um, and for including us in this awesome podcast. We appreciate it so much. Now I have to give credit to Stacy Kirby for recommending Dr. Luke come on the show. And Dr. Luke mentioned Stacy during our conversation about the safekeeping program, which provides foster care to pets of survivors of domestic violence and others in crisis. Dr. Luke said Stacy, a volunteer, was instrumental in laying the groundwork for the program. And by now you know, that is just one of the many programs and services the Austin Humane Society provides the community. If you're interested in getting involved, volunteering in some capacity, donating, adopting, fostering, visit austinhumanesociety.org and follow their social media accounts for the latest information. It was such a pleasure speaking with Dr. Luke She truly found her niche in veterinary medicine, a second family in her colleagues, and a rewarding career at the Austin Humane Society. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them, and if you have a minute to spare, we would love to read yours too. Thank you for tuning in to Veterinary Vitals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TVMA. TVMA.